Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast on the Times. I'm Matt Jolly. Welcome to this budget special. I'm just off Central Lobby where the debate on the budget is still ongoing. I'm joined by Nikki Morgan, Chairwoman of the Treasury Select Committee and Tory MP and Alison McGovern, Labour MP, and a member of the same committee. You've both just been in the chamber. I'll start with you, Nikki. What's your take? What's your hot take on it? Well, I think that the Chancellor had a very difficult tightrope to uh, walk between, obviously, um, reflecting fact that we haven't got a majority in the House of Commons, so big controversial measures will be difficult to get through, uh, but also people looking for a bit of a lift um, and, and to talk about something other than Brexit. And I think on that, he absolutely succeeded. And I think he has set things up for the, the future. He's tackled some difficult issues around universal credit. People wanted to hear more. The stamp duty announcement, I think, is uh, very welcome. But of course, there are some underlying issues around productivity and the growth forecast. Alison, before we start recording, you said that uh, Budget Day was like Christmas Day for you. It is. I, I do prefer Budget Day to Christmas Day in many ways. Really? That's amazing. Uh, it, I, to me, it's Christmas like... must be rubbish in your house. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm terribly sorry to all my family. <laughs> uh, uh, I find it the most interesting part of politics because I think if you really want to know what's going on, you have to follow the money. And today we heard a Chancellor who I think, as Nikki rightly said, had a very difficult tightrope to walk and he was desperate to open up a kind of big vision and the subject he chose was housing. And unfortunately, in my view, he's completely messed it up because he's announced a policy uh, to remove stamp duty from first-time buyers that the OBR have told us will push prices up and they say it will benefit those that already own houses not people trying to buy them. So his, the central plank of his budget, I think, has already fallen apart. So this is interesting. So alongside all the documents the Treasury publishes, we get the Office for Budget Responsibility, Economic and Fiscal Forecast, which is a brilliant... I mean, it's sort of written as a sort of sort of theme of almost sarcasm written through it, as it, as it picks through what the government's doing. And it's, it goes over this idea of first-time buyers not paying stamp duty up to £200,000. And it, it spells out quite clearly that it, all it's going to do is push up prices. The last time a similar thing was done, it pushed up prices by 0.3%. The only people who benefit are people who are selling houses. Nikki, do you think that actually people will just get the message he's done something for young first-time buyers, even if the 
practicalities aren't as clear-cut? Or does this end up being a sort of another botched budget idea? No, I don't think it's, uh, it's that at all. I think actually people will, judging by Twitter at the moment, they are actually quite excited about it. I think I feel very sorry for those first-time buyers who completed yesterday, who are suddenly discovering they've got stamp duty to, to, to pay. Uh, we will obviously, as a committee, have the Office of Budget Responsibility in front of us next week and we'll ask them uh, about that. Um, I was, I think, just going into legal practice the last time there were big stamp duty changes and it did get the market moving uh, and it did get, uh, in that case, it was, I think, just helping everybody to, to, to move to pay less stamp duty. But I think if it does get people onto the housing ladder then that's going to be very welcome um, but of course there's a bigger package than that in terms of housing because um, it was he was talking about skills we need more construction skills we need more land he's going to look at why planning permissions being granted and then the land's not being used um, all those things I mean stamp duties are part of it uh, and it's going to be important for some people uh, but there's many other things that need to happen to make the housing market move another thing is in the OBR reports it talked about significant easing in cuts uh, a significant near-term fiscal giveaway. Is this the end of austerity? I mean, he didn't, uh, he didn't egg that up particularly, it's sort of only when you dig around in the documents. He's, he's borrowing more, he's spending more. Was that what you expected? Um, I think it probably was what I expected, actually, because there is a demand, and there's no doubt that people have um, made enormous sacrifices over the course of the last seven years, particularly those obviously working in the um, public sector. Uh, the NHS does need more investment, and that was uh, recognised. We do need, I think the National Retraining Service is a, is a brilliant idea um, and very much uh, needed. I think he described it as a bit of fiscal loosening. We haven't lost the overall drive to balance the books, uh, but we know it's going to take longer um, and it's going to be uh, harder to get there. What do you make of it, Alison? Is there, is there anything you can pick out of it that you thought was good? No, there isn't really. I mean, growth is down. Productivity is still uh, on the floor. I mean, the housing stuff, look, all of the things that he said about planning sound fine until you remember that they've cut local councils to the bone and we've barely got any planning officers anymore. So how are we going to deliver not, how are we gonna deliver this? I mean, Nicky's right. There's about, my my count, there's about six billion worth of loosening, which kind of just gives the lie that has been made as an argument, which is that the purpose of these Tories in government is to deal with the deficit. George Osborne never did it. Philip Hammond doesn't look like he'll ever do it. Will we ever have a Chancellor that ever presides over a budget surplus ever again? Well, well presumably not if we get a Labour Chancellor and it's John McDonald. Well, I think the truth is that Labour have been making this argument, whether it was Ed Balls or John McDonald, actually both of them made a pretty consistent argument that you had to invest in the right things and you had to try and move our country on that way. I think if you look at the way that we talked about house building quite differently from this pump priming demand all the time and trying to look at you know, creating alternatives to build more homes, then actually I think we would be quite different in the practice. And just finally, Nikki. Philip Hammond, is he more or less likely to get the sack in the new year than he was before we gave his budget? I think that there's absolutely no reason on the basis of today, and I don't think there's any reason at all, for Philip Hammond to be uh, moved on. I think actually uh, moving your Chancellor at a time when hopefully we're about to start the trade negotiations with the uh, EU, uh, actually that's where the government should be focused in the course of the next year, the transition. Treasury's got a really important role to play uh, in obviously listening to business, particularly financial services, and thinking how we're going to deal with their regulations when we leave the European uh, Union. Uh, so um, he had a very difficult job to do today, and as I said in the Chamber, I think he met the the, the hurdles that he set himself. Hurdles and tightrope, that's an excellent way to describe it. Nicky Morgan, Alison McGovern, thank you very much. So I've moved now to the press cafe high above the Commons Chamber with uh, a section of Times journalists 
Let's start with you, Patrick Kidd, the Times sketch writer. Before we get into the nitty-gritty and the numbers and all that sort of stuff, let's start with what really matters. How good were Philip Hammond's jokes? They weren't bad. You know, leave the details to those who understand it. But there was a good atmosphere in, in, in the Commons. There was um, uh, his own backbenchers were waving their water papers and shouting more and more. And they loved some of his jokes. He started early with a, a physical one, making a joke at Theresa May's expense. Maybe a brave man to do that, but su suggesting that he had... Uh, uh, taken precautions in case he had the same problem that she had at her conference and said, Mrs May, you, you brought some cough sweets and she brought out some strepsils and chucked them onto the dispatch box in front of him. That it was proper, proper Chuckle Brothers stuff, that. It was. It was Palace of Varieties. Always helped by uh, Lindsay Hoyle, of course, who is far better at this sort of slapstick um, fun from the Speaker's chair than, than, than John Burko. He then had a dig at Mike, Michael Gove, uh, who, uh, as the Times reported recently, uh, thinks that he should be the next Chancellor, uh, saying, if you're paying attention, this is the bit with the, the long economic-y words. Uh, and that went down well. And there were a few others. There, were, there was a Top Gear joke, uh, Hammond and May, uh, yet again, was uh, beaten off a man called Jeremy. And it, it went down well. As performance, you know, I'll give him five out of ten for that. And he was really trying to shake off his sort of Eeyore reputation uh, by being sort of quite hopey, changey, think of the future, the brave new world that lies ahead of us outside the EU. Do you think he pulled that off and convinced quite a lot of sceptical Tory MPs? Well, what happens in the room is obviously different to the unravelling that happens later. But yeah, I, I, I think actually they were behind him. Um, and then it was noticeable later that Jeremy Corbyn could do little more than just shout. I mean, he was like a sort of an angry old tramp who's just found out that the price of rollers and Diamond White has gone up. Um, he just sort of, uh, he just shouted. There was nothing more. And, and noticeably, um, his own party weren't really behind him. They were more against a couple of uh, obnoxious Tories who were, who were chuntering and shouting, there was lots of pointing their fingers and telling them to get out. But, but Corbyn didn't have his party with him, I felt, whereas Hammond seemed to have his backbenchers on his side by the end. And just finally, because I know you've got to go and uh, actually write your sketch for the paper, um, do you think that Philip Hammond survives as Chancellor based on his performance today? Well, Michael Gove wasn't in the chambers. He was probably mugging up Economics 101 uh, just, just in case he's asked to serve later on. I, at the end of, of, of the, uh, the, the session, as Hammond sat down, he got a pat on the shoulder from Theresa May and a pat from Damien Green. Uh, it's always good to keep his hands where, he can, where you can see them. And um, I, I think that's always a good sign as if a chance to sort of sit down and be patted from both sides. I think this keeps him in place for a bit longer. Well, I'll let you get off um, and write your sketch for the paper tomorrow. Joined now by Alice Thompson, Times columnist, and Sam Coates, deputy political editor. I mean, all of the digging through the numbers and all of that sort of stuff. Do, do, Sam, talk us through the sort of the headlines uh, that people will be reading about tomorrow for the next couple of days. And the sort of let's focus on the bad news, if you like. He's done. Philip Hammond's done all the all the shiny good stuff. The growth figures, in particular, are pretty grim. Yeah, I mean, I think the big picture of this budget is it's a sort of make do and mend budget. He's injecting uh, an emergency amount of money for the NHS, 2.5 billion. There's a uh, uh, there's a 1.5 billion for universal credit. Um, uh, but the underlying economics of this budget are absolutely appalling. There have been uh, downgrades, dramatic downgrades uh, to GDP growth forecast by the Office of Bunch of, uh, Budget Responsibility. I mean, I don't think in its history there's ever been uh, a forecast where in every year of the five years it's below 2%. Uh, some of the uh, uh, some of the individual years forecasts uh, are dropping uh, a half a percentage point, which is which which is which is quite big, and that feeds into uh, a sort of really quite poor underlying uh, uh, sort of underlying public finance numbers. Now, what he's done at this budget is a, a bit of a trick. You'll hear on the airwaves a lot of talk about how Philip Hand has spent a bit of money but stayed within his fiscal rules. But actually, what he's ended up doing is borrowing more. 
18 billion pounds more um, and he's managed to stay within his fiscal his rather dramatic tight fiscal rules uh, to do that um, because he had a piece of luck and that piece of luck is the Office for National Statistics, based over in Wales, uh, uh, have decided that no, they no longer have to do this techie thing where they declare that all uh, 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 sort of housing associations have to be counted as public sector debt. Very uh, uh, sort of very in intricate change has been made, but effectively what that means is that he can borrow a bit more uh, without breaching his rules, and he's made maximum use of that. Um, but he is doing that thing that Philip Hammond was not the fiscal conservative who didn't want to load up future generations with debt that has to be paid back for the sins of the present, is having to do. He's having to load this amount of debt. Now, we're in a weird economic time where actually I think quite a lot of Tory MPs would be quite relaxed, even pleased that they've, um, that they've opened the floodgates, loosened, fiscally loosened a bit, to use the jargon. Um, but it's just not what we thought Philip Hammond was going into that job to do. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Alex, were you surprised by the way fiscal fill seems to have loosened the purse strings quite a lot? The OBR calls it a significant easing in cuts. There's extra money for the NHS, extra money on welfare, extra money for housing, extra money for schools. Were you surprised by that? Um, I wasn't surprised once you'd seen the growth forecast because you realised that it was going to be so dark that every time you got a good piece of news, you kept going back to thinking, but my God, it's going to be really grim for the next few years. So he was going to have to do something and he knew he was going to have to do something. None of it's so substantial that you, you gasp when you hear it. No one's been you know, so put out that they're going to gasp. There's quite a lot about not harming white fan man and he was desperate not to do something stupid after last time. So that was his real priority, is not to get something so wrong that it was all going to unravel. And actually, some of the things, I mean, things like stamp duty won't really make that big a difference. So that was his big announcement that everyone cheered. But actually, if you do cut stamp duty for people who are buying their first house under 300,000, it will give them 1,000, 2,000 more. But that's not you know, enough, really, when they've got to come up with that money originally to buy a house. And actually, it's going to make houses more expensive in the end, and it's not going to solve the whole housing crisis. I mean, 300,000 more houses, that's what he wants to get, but it, how he gets there is still very difficult. And he had this big battle with number 10. He wanted to loosen the rules on building on the green belt because he thought that was the way that you got more housing. Well, he did have a house building company, so he does know the ins and outs. He also kept saying he was going to review issues rather than actually do them. So the plastic bags, a great idea after Blue Planet 2. The whole country's washed as a, you know, a mother dolphin carries around her baby dead dolphin who she thinks, well, we think has died because of plastic bags and rubbish. He could have done something more there, I think. He could be more dramatic and it's shown to have worked before when they've done that. He also could have done more, I think, probably, instead of, uh, with the housing, instead of saying they were going to see what they were going to do about various issues and Oliver Letman was going to look into various issues. That, that wasn't really enough. You need to solve it now and people are talking about it the whole time. They've had years, the Tories, now to get on top of this. What's your sense? Is he, is he saved himself? I mean, there, was, there seemed to be a lot riding on this. Well, we did play him down 
So I think, in a way, that was quite good for him. No one thought he was going to be particularly good. His jokes were even better than we thought. Yes, I mean, we all thought this was going to be, you know, after the last budget, a potentially catastrophic budget for him, and he might have to go, and Michael Gove would have to come. So actually, I think he's managed to stop that and prevent it, but only because he raised expectations in the end by giving a few things away. And Sam, his language on Brexit was not... I mean, the budget in March was notable in that he almost barely mentioned Brexit at all. I mean, his language on Brexit this time was desperately trying to shed this Eeyore reputation. It's all going to be big and marvellous and wonderful and full of change and opportunities for the future. Do you think any of the sort of hardline Brexiteers will be persuaded by that, that he now thinks there is a great future for Britain outside the EU? Well, Philip Hammond actually pretty much opened his budget speech with three billion extra for Brexit preparations on top of the 700 million that there's already been. Now, I remember um, uh, about a month ago in The Times, Philip Hammond writing, making quite clear that he didn't think that now was the money for spending uh, on no deal preparations. Now, these are preparations for um, any outcome. The government doesn't specifically talk about no deal planning outcomes. But the sense I got when writing that a month ago was that there was going to be literally no spending on Brexit uh, in the budget. And in order to, as it were, buy his way back in, uh, stave off a bit of a a political problem for himself, he uh, he sought to shed off the reputation of being the EO donkey chancellor and, um, uh, and spend that Money, so yes, I think it does. It, that does help buy him a little bit of, um, uh, of of credibility. It is quite interesting what's going on here. The Chancellor is just writing checks for departments. Now I ha- I can't remember when that last happened. We're calling it Brexit money, but we're not quite sure what they're going to spend it on, and they're not telling us today. Departments are getting more money. This is the first time since a Conservative entered Downing Street in 2010, where uh, where you've seen that kind of loosening without. Sp- it being attached to specific projects. Under the heading of Brexit, it's interesting uh, that money is going in. Now, we don't know the scale of the changes that need to be made, the impacts that they might have, and quite how uh, the extra spending will match up with the demands that each department has. That will come later. I just think the notion of opening up your coffers, uh, you've seen in this budget, and it's such a change from the kind of you know austerity narrative that George Osborne peddled. I mean, I think in big picture political terms, Today's budget is, it makes it even harder to go down that kind of 2015 Tory campaign, talking about balancing the books in order to um, uh, uh, pay off the deficit, in order to um, reach the sunny uplands. Because effectively, they have gone down the borrow now, uh, spend more now uh, route in order to stave off um, political crises, which seem to be encroaching on this government from every front. Um, as I say, I think some Tory MPs are actually quite relaxed about that. But it does raise the question... What is this government actually for? And in a way, I was sat when I was listening to his speech and then digging through the papers afterwards, is it all just a bit pointless, this budget? Because as the OBR says, the problem with forecasting when we don't know where we're going with Brexit, they use the phrase, it's not straightforward, which is a sort of polite way of putting it. They've literally got no idea where we're going to be in March 2019 or 2020 or 2021 tinkering, didn't it? So every department, he'd go there and it would, there'd be a little bit like Grenfell, you definitely need to do something to help people there. But it, they were all bits and pieces. And apart from the NHS, it was very much, we'll do a little bit here, not, you know, a bit of cheap alcohol. We don't like that. We don't like private jets, but we're not actually going to really whack someone like Google. Um, there was nothing really massive in that way. And I think you kept giving different, you know, different people got little bits and pieces to try and make them feel better about it, like the stamp duty, but that's not enough to get the housing market moving. But none of it was so substantial that you thought, God, you know, that's really going to change. I'd be even more dramatic. Why do we need a budget 
at all. The <laughs> theatre is absolutely absurd. They need a headline. So they've done a stamp duty relief for first-time buyers. The OBR says that's going to raise house prices. I think it'll probably unravel. They needed a gimmick. They've got it. G- gimmicks unravel. That's a problem. You look into the fine detail of the uh, uh, of the rail card announcement. Turns out that's yet to be negotiated with the train operating companies. So train operating companies have got government over a bar- barrel for the sake of a headline. You've also got this process where policy is drawn up in secret for this great moment of theatre but we don't have great actors on the stage, so it isn't that exciting <laughs> when we actually see it. So I think this budget proves the need to abolish the budget, um, have a slightly more sensible, lower-key policy-making process uh, that tries to work out what the problems are and what the solutions are, rather than the once or twice a year ta that has gone wrong each of the last five times we've done it and will probably go wrong again. And it's particularly bad this time, man, because we've had two budgets this year because of his... Philip Hammond's bright idea of moving the budget from the autumn, from the spring to the autumn, which meant we had one in the spring and one in the autumn. Be really appreciating that now, don't you? Yeah, it might have made. I think skipping a year might have been better than uh, than going through. All this. On the other hand, I disagree slightly because I think you do need to focus at one point in the year. You get the, the whole country think, God, what do we actually think of this? You know, where's it going? What's happening? Otherwise, they, you know, I know mean, we're about to get more to do maths A level, but. You know, people don't like figures normally and they're not going to look at them unless you do something about it. And who knows how bad the growth figures would be if they didn't update them. For, yeah, yes, exactly. It, <laughs> uh, absolutely. I mean, thank goodness for the OBR. Uh, one of the new innovations, George Osborne's best innovation, probably in spite of himself, was the introduction of the Office of Budget Responsibility. Because you get the speech and you get the budget red book on budget day, but the thing that tells you actually what's, what, what's being done is not the thing that's written in the Treasury, but it's written by this independent group of people that just has page after page after page of problem for the government. It's got lists of uncertainties in government policy. It's got lists of um, uh, the problems of the uh, uh, bes- that will beset the policies that they've chosen to do today. It's got the full grimness of the public finances. It, it reveals how basically this is a borrowing budget, not a clever wheeze budget. All of these things set out in absolutely pitiless, quite well written, very clear prose. Um, m- make that the go-to document on on, on, on budget day, I haven't opened my red book yet. I've just spent all afternoon reading the reading the blue one. Um, frankly, um, it's m- much more telling than what we heard from one hour and two minutes of Philip Hammond in the chamber. Well, I'll let you get off, um, uh, get stuck into the red book. My favourite bit in the OBR's uh, blue book, as Sam was describing it, is they refer to the Augustinian tendency for governments to announce giveaways in the near term with the promise that the cost will be recouped by takeaways in the later years. And that's what governments always do. There's giveaways now, there's pain later, and nobody knows where it's going to come from. Wait, pay for your plastic takeaway wrapper, that's the thing. And, you know, when George Osborne went after pasties and sausage rolls, all that went wrong. So see, let's see what happens what, <laughs> let's see what happens with uh, Philip Hammond. But that's all we've got time for. I think all my colleagues have got to get off and um, get stuck into writing about the budget for The Times online and in the paper. Uh, as ever, do get in touch with any thoughts about the budget or the way that we've been uh, discussing it. Email redbox at thetimes.co.uk or find us on Twitter at timesredbox. Sign up to my morning email. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox for the insider's take on what's happening in Westminster. But for now, my thanks to all my guests, Nicky Morgan, Alison McGovern, Sam Coates, Alice Thompson, Patrick Kidd, and for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.